This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. And today I want to share with you the story of how some of us in the department got together to try to come up with ideas on how to address the current crisis we're living through, the COVID-19 pandemic. At this point in time, I don't have to introduce the COVID-19 pandemic to any one of us. It has been a disease that has reshaped our world. It has impacted communities all throughout the globe in health and economy. It has changed the way that we interact with each other, and it has really brought the world to a standstill. To date, we have more than 25 million people that have been infected by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the causative agent of this pandemic. In the U.S. alone, we have more than 5 million people that have been infected, and we have a devastating human toll of more than 170,000 people. This disease is really changing our world. And today, what I want you to do for a moment is think back to March of this year, to around this time, March 11 of 2020. Most of you at this point probably had not heard about COVID-19, Probably most of you had no idea what a coronavirus was. And there were some things in the news that were starting to come up about a virus that started in China some time ago, and that was starting to come into the U.S. But really, we did not know much about this virus. We did not know much about this disease. We had very limited information. I clearly remember where I was that day, March 11. I was giving one of the first talks that I gave about this virus, informing my department about what we knew up to that point. What were coronaviruses? How did we think we could catch it? What could we do to prevent it? I also remember that I had to change my presentation very quickly that day because on March 11, the WHO declared COVID-19 a pandemic. That just meant that the epidemic had reached a global scale and it was affecting essentially all continents and all countries in the world. This was a moment um, where many of us just started thinking of what was the impact that this virus was going to have in our communities and in our country? If we go back to those days, we had less than 10,000 people that had been infected at that point in the U.S. alone. And we had about 150 deaths that had been caused by this virus. This didn't seem like, you know, huge case numbers or huge numbers of deaths. But in retrospective, we knew that the pandemic was brewing and we knew that this was going to expand dramatically in our country and that it was going to impact a lot of people. So when we started seeing the behavior of the virus, um, some of us in the department decided to get together and see how could we put our brains um, together to work towards addressing this pandemic that was clearly going to impact us, not only at the uh, country level, but also at our community level here at UCSB. So we had a conversation with um, between four of us, Diego Acosta-Alviar, who is a cellular biologist and assistant professor in our department, Ken Kosick, who is an um, MD and a neuroscientist and a professor again in MCDB, and Max Wilson, who is a molecular and developmental biologist, again, an assistant professor in um, our department, and myself, I am a virologist. So we saw that the four different areas of study and that our expertise could really complement each other and could help us come up with ideas to address this problem that was brewing. So the way we sat down and talked about it was, okay, in order for us to confront this pandemic, there are different strategies that we could take. 
The first one is you can prevent the transmission of the virus. At that moment, around again mid-March, we didn't know much about the virus. There were, um, the biology was just starting to be uncovered. We were just starting to understand how the virus was transmitted. And really, we were just trying, it's starting to see some molecular aspects that would allow us to design vaccines. By now, we know that there are hundreds of groups around the world that are working together to try to develop a vaccine. And they have all the expertise necessary, expertise that we don't have here. Another aspect of it is the treatment. So you can develop a drug to treat the virus. But again, at that point, we didn't have much information that could allow us to do, to do that in an um, intelligent way. Um, this is the job of a lot of pharmaceutical companies, and there's uh, several of them that are working now in developing a treatment. So we saw that both of those spaces were really not the area that we were going to be able to succeed. But we saw that diagnostics were a good area where we could use our expertise and where we could exploit all the resources that we have here in order to develop a method or use methods that would allow us to see when somebody's infected. So why did we focus on that besides the fact that we could actually do it? Well, we know that testing is essential to control outbreaks. Diagnostics are going to allow us to see who is carrying the virus, who is infected, and it's going to allow us to understand the transmission in our communities and also is going to offer us the possibility of developing strategies to control it. We know that there are two methods that we, or two uh, ways that we can diagnose these diseases. One is we can detect viral components in samples. We basically can take a sample from any individual and see if the virus is present in that sample. We can also detect antibodies in samples, and this is just going to be a measure of your immune response to this virus. And it's going to allow us to see if you have been exposed to that virus, but not necessarily that you're infected by it at that exact moment. When we looked at the alternatives that we had, we decided to go with detecting viral components in samples. Essentially, taking a sample from an individual and seeing if they had the virus in them. That represents a potential, again, to transmit it, and that would allow us to quickly respond to try to control um, the transmission. When we um, started thinking about how could we detect um, the virus in samples, we again decided to take a look at two approaches. One was, okay, we can use what it's already available out there. There were, at this point, already some tests that had been validated and approved by the FDA. But we said, we are not going to end there. We could also start thinking of developing our own test. So the first thing that we did was do this, use what is available. So this is a method that is called the RTQPCR and is widely used. Again, it was approved by the FDA pretty early on and in March it was already available um, to test for SARS-CoV-2 and to diagnose COVID-19. How does it work? Well, what we do is we collect the sample, we extract the viral RNA, the viral genome, and we then convert this into DNA. After we have it as DNA, we amplify it. We just make a lot of copies with it with an enzyme called DNA polymerase. This is, you can think about it as almost like a copier machine. We are here targeting and looking for viral, uh, for pieces of the viral genome, and we can specifically uh, do that. We also have here another tool that is when this enzyme, the DNA polymerase, is copying the DNA, it's going to find what we have here as a probe. This probe is basically a, a, a fragment of DNA that has a fluorescent dye and a quencher. When it is intact, the fluorescent dye cannot not emit any signal and we cannot see it. 
when the polymerase hits that probe, it basically just degrades it, it um, breaks it apart, and the dye is released and we can see fluorescence. This release of the fluorescence and this detection of the fluorescence is only going to happen if you have viral genomes or the pieces of DNA that you want to detect in a sample. So what we have here is how this would look. A positive sample, we would detect fluorescence, so this is basically a fluorescence signal. In a negative sample, we would not see it. So this assay is extremely sensitive and is very specific. So it was a great tool for us to start um, using and working on um, establishing here on campus, and we did so rather quickly. But the other thing we saw with this particular method is, okay, first you need very specific and sophisticated equipment to run it, and you need highly trained personnel also to run and interpret the results. And we know that that is not available everywhere. We know that uh, not every single area in the world has all the tools and all the reagents and all the personnel that is needed to run these particular assays. We also hit another limitation and was the availability of the reagents and equipment that we needed to run this particular assay. Very early on, we basically ran out of the um, components that we needed. Um, I remember that at one point we had um, bought some of these uh, reagents and we got a call from um, uh, the public health department and Cottage Hospital that they needed some of these reagents and we gave them some. But at that moment, this really showed us that this was going to be a limiting factor and we decided to develop a test that was not tied to any of those limitations. And we went with uh, a method that it's a CRISPR-based method. Some of you may have heard CRISPR as a genome editing tool that has been um, widely advertised in the news and has enormous potential. So we decided to use it. How does this test work? Well, what we do is we collect the sample the same way as we did with the RT-QPCR. We extract the viral genome and then we uh, convert it into DNA. So basically the first steps for both methods are the same. We then amplify a specific region of that viral genome. And in this case, we use another, um, or we use an enzyme that is also DNA polymerase, but this enzyme is widely uh, available and is found essentially anywhere that you can do some very simple molecular biology, you can find it. I can tell you that even some high schools around the um, country use this method just as a regular uh, technique that they learn as part of their education. So once we have the amplification of uh, that particular region, what we do is we convert again into um, RNA, and we use this enzyme right here, Cas13. This enzyme, you can think about it as molecular scissors. They are, it's a nuclease. And these molecular scissors get activated when they find the target that we're looking for. And again, in this uh, case, it's a region of the viral genome. So that's what we have right here. When this enzyme, when these molecular scissors, scissors get activated, they just basically go crazy. And they start cutting left and right any RNA that they can find. So what we did was give them a probe, something very similar to what I showed you here. It has a fluorescent dye on one end, it has a quencher on the other. When it is intact, the fluorescence is not going to be detected. When it is broken, the dye is released and you can actually detect the fluorescence. So we can uh, see fluorescence in the samples where this enzyme was activated. And what that is going to tell you is that that sample has the particular viral genome region that you were looking for. That sample had a virus. It is a very easy um, to read assay. I'm going to show you in a moment. But again, I told you that one of the main limitations that this particular method had is the um, requirement for the sophisticated equipment and the sophisticated um, tools and the highly trained personnel. 
So we decided to basically decouple uh, that from our test. And the test that we created is called CREST, CAS 13 based, rugged, equitable, scalable testing. Why do we call it rugged? Well, that has to do with the kind of tools that we use to run this assay. So what we did was for that step where I said we have to do the amplification of the DNA, the PCR, we used a, much, uh, a little equipment called thermocycler. This thermocycler runs on batteries. We can take it anywhere. And it can be operated with a cell phone. It doesn't need highly sophisticated um, you know, laboratories, and it doesn't need uh, highly trained personnel to be run. It has actually been used in the jungle for other purposes, so we know that it can perform in extreme conditions. The second piece of equipment that we used was a detector of fluorescence that we have here, that is the P51 um, visualizer. And it's basically the size of a tissue box. You put your samples in there, and if they are fluorescent, you turn on a light, and if they are fluorescent, you're going to be able to see them. And that's what I'm showing you here. These four samples here where we can see fluorescence had the target region of the viral genome that we were looking for. These four right here do not. So this is a binary assay that anybody that um, can use this equipment can easily see that these four samples are fluorescing and these four samples are not. It's very easy to interpret. There is no math. There is no fancy equipment. There is no need for um, you know, training for this. It's just a binary assay. So besides being used um, or being able to use these in basically any environment with some batteries and a phone, we also saw that CREST, our method, had a very good sensitivity that was up to par with the conventional tests, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. So this makes CREST a very powerful tool. And okay, so at this point in time, we were able to detect samples or detect uh, virus in samples with the conventional test, the RT-QPCR, and we were able to detect um, virus uh, or virus in samples with CREST. So where did we go from here, right? Did we continue? We continued actually developing some other methods that would help us um, make these two more processive, that would help us uh, reduce the costs. But we knew that the main point for us to have developed a method was to use it. So we decided to explore the idea of surveillance. Surveillance is basically looking in a population how many individuals are carrying the virus. In particular, we were interested in seeing uh, who in our community has the virus but does not show any symptoms. And the reason is because um, COVID-19 has this particularity. There's a lot of individuals that get very mild symptoms. There's a lot of individuals that get no symptoms, as well as there are some individuals that get very sick and end up in the hospital. But we were very interested in this population, the people that do not show symptoms, that just basically circulate among our community and have the potential to carry and transmit the virus to others unknowingly. We know from other studies that the numbers of asymptomatic carriers, people with the virus that do not show any symptoms, can be as high as 42%. Again, when you think about it, the repercussions for transmission of having somebody that is not showing any symptoms and may not be taking the same kind of care as somebody who's sick, it is enormous. So we decided, again, to um, explore that in our own community. So we decided to put at use 
the two methods that we had already set up here in UCSB that we were able to run in our labs in order for us to do surveillance of SARS-CoV-2 in asymptomatic individuals in the UCSB community. Our goal was to recruit about 1,800 healthy individuals from just here, our students, our faculty, and our staff. To do so and to embark in this project, we had to form a tight partnership. And we decided to work with Dr. Lynn Fitzgibbons, Dr. Catherine Arn, and Dr. Stuart Comer from uh, the uh, Cottage Santa Barbara um, Hospital. Uh, they are a wonderful team of clinicians that were very open to collaborate with us and help us in all the clinical aspects that this project was going to have. We also partner up with our uh, student health center here uh, at UCSB. This is an amazing group of people that had all the tools and all the knowledge to interact with our community and that really were in charge of taking the samples, as I'm going to show you. We also recruited a lot of our grad students and postdocs from um, Dr. King Kosick's lab, from uh, Dr. Max Wilson's lab, from Dr. Acosta of their lab, and from my lab. Everybody worked together. We basically just created a new lab for this project, and everybody was absolutely involved in making this work. We had a lot of support also from the Office of Research, and everybody on campus here was really interested in making this work, which was um, a wonderful and inspiring partnership that was being formed. So our first step was, of course, collect samples. And when we started thinking how to do it, we wanted to try to um, make this test easy and widely available, uh, and also at the same time minimize the potential exposure that our healthcare workers could have collecting samples. So we decided to do a self-collection. This really opens up the opportunity for a lot of people to just take the samples themselves, collect your own sample, put it in a tube, and then we'll process it. All of this was uh, an effort led by Holly Smith, Laura Polito, Betsy Maliar at, again, the Student Health Center. So here we just have some of the instructions. You just basically open your mouth, swab your throat, and then stick the tube um, in a little, uh, stick, stick the swab in a little tube, and you're done. So this was basically the arrangement that we had. Um, it was highly efficient, as I'm going to show you. Um, at one point, we were able uh, to test and collect samples from 300 people in just one day. So it was really an enormous effort, and um, I thank all the volunteers that helped us um, establish uh, these methods of collection and collecting all of these samples. So how did this work? Well, so we basically had two times of collection. We have our first cohort that was between May 28th and June 11th. During this first cohort, we collected 732 specimens um, in a span of about, um, I think, three collection times. So here we are. We then had to stop collection because we had summer break and um, everybody um, had gone home. And not only we didn't have enough participants, but we didn't have enough volunteers to collect the samples. So we just took a break. And we resumed collection around um, June 23, and then we ended up in July 2nd. At this point for our second cohort, we collected um, 1,076 specimens in six days of collection. We achieved our goal. Uh, we collected the 1,800 samples that we wanted at the beginning. And our population was about 28% faculty and staff and 72% students, which reflects the composition of our university. So that was very satisfactory because we really took a snapshot of our community um, at large. Our average age was um, 28 uh, years old for cohort one and 26 years old for cohort two. 
And again, the range um, of ages was between 18 to 75 um, years old. Again, um, providing us a good snapshot of the population um, in our campus. So what did we do once we had the samples? So we now have 1,800 samples. What did we do with them? Well, after collection, what we did was basically do the methods that I just described to you. We extracted the RNA, and we ran, we ran every single sample with CREST and RTQPCR. Then what we did was, if we had a negative result, we did not report it. There, if basically, in this case, uh, no news were good news. If we had a positive um, test, we had to undergo a diagnostic confirmation. So we essentially sent the sample to a clinical laboratory that could confirm our observations here in the research realm. If you had a negative, again, you would uh, present no report to the participant. If there was a positive confirmation, the um, participant would be notified about the result and they would be followed up with both a student health center and with the public health department. So we really had a very um, good communication process and basically um, handling of the sample that allowed us to go through this process several times and allowed us to complete um, all of these three um, that I'm showing you here and we were able to report positive cases and again inform the participants. So what did we find? Oh, um, this is basically, I just wanted to show you here first um, how our process in the lab works. As I told you, this was a huge effort by our grad students and our postdocs, and I just wanted to show that they had the best disposition ever um, to achieve these. Um, we, again, uh, in the laboratory, what we did was we had the sample, extract their RNA, convert it into cDNA, and run both our CRIST and our RT-QPCR. Um, the turnaround time for every single one of the samples was uh, anywhere between 12 uh, to 36 hours, which just showed the efficiency that we had in the lab. And as I mentioned, um, we were able to run up to 300 samples in one day with a skeleton crew. So what did we find? So it was actually kind of surprising what we started seeing and at the same time kind of expected. So here is our first um, cohort between May 28th and June 11th. We did not detect any positive cases at that point. In the 800 samples, there was not a single test that showed um, virus in the sample, which was very interesting to us. We took our break from um, around June 23 to June 22nd, and then we started collection again. And the first day of collection, we picked up one positive sample. And the second day, we picked up another one. And the third day, we picked up three more, and so on. All of the samples that were positive were in the second cohort. Importantly, we um, collected or we detected uh, nine positive samples and we were able to confirm eight of those in um, the clinical lab and also by CREST. So these really talked very highly about uh, the, the almost perfect concordance between the conventional method, the RTQPCR, and the one that was developed by us, CREST. So now we know that these two methods are really coinciding in the results and are very powerful and as sensitive. So when we started looking at this, what I'm showing you in this graph is, okay, the red dots are the samples that we detected. Again, we detected, um, we confirmed eight positive cases in cohort number two. We also put in this graph the cumulative number of cases that we saw for diagnosed cases by um, either the hospitals or by the public health department, and these are reports by, by the public health department. Across time, so this is the cumulative cases that we had in Goleta and IV, our locality here, basically our neighboring uh, communities uh, for the campus. And we saw essentially the same trend. Everything was very quiet 
And the moment that we started detecting our cases, the number of cases started rising up in our communities. We then looked at, okay, what was happening at this point in terms of our community and the interactions? Well, we know that when we were in our first cohort, we were, we were in the stage two of the California reopening plan. So we were just basically still cooped up, still uh, with the stay-home orders. Around June 12th, Santa Barbara was open. That was when we had all the restaurants open, when we had all our uh, places open, and Santa Barbara was open for business. And we enter, entered stage three. And when we started de detecting our cases, it was 14 days, about two to three weeks, after stage three was initiated. So this really reflects how the increased interaction and opening the communities probably helped not only us seeing these cases, but increase the cases in the community. Something that we found that was very interesting that we were not um, expecting so much was the, the viral loads, basically the number of viruses that we detected in, these two sam in, this, in the samples from asymptomatic individuals. Remember, none of our patients, none of our participants had any symptoms at the moment of collection. We saw that the virus levels were the same as some samples that were from symptomatic patients that came uh, from our collaborators in the public health department. So there were no differences in the number of viruses that we could detect in the samples, which was very interesting. And um, these asymptomatic individuals had viruses at very high levels. We also uh, followed up with them. Some of them reported back to our student health center. And we know that from the eight cases that we confirmed, two of them had classical symptoms. They uh, lost the sense of smell and taste. Two of them have very mild symptoms, just like a common cold. And two of them never developed any symptoms. I think one of the most interesting observations here is that none of these uh, participants reported developing any fever. So that just shows you how diverse the symptoms of this disease are and how um, aware we must be of these asymptomatic carriers that, again, can be in our population um, carrying and transmitting the virus unknowingly to others. So with that, I just want um, to summarize in the last couple of minutes. I think our surveillance um, research really showed that we had a shift in the prevalence in the detection of cases um, that coincided with changes in the community restrictions and again with public um, interactions. I think it's very important to highlight that our results indicating the leading wave of a, of a local outbreak. We basically were able to look at asymptomatic individuals and start seeing that the transmission in our community was increasing and was um, expanding. I think this is also um, an important example of how surveillance in an asymptomatic population, again, using self-collected samples that sometimes are uh, thought not to be as uh, sensitive as those taken by healthcare providers, it still gave us a very important insight into the uh, transmission um, at our community level. And again, what I mentioned about the great concordance between CRISPR and the conventional PCR-based assays really expands the possibilities that we have for this kind of surveillance assays in our communities. Where do we go from here? Well, right now we are working on automating CREST to increase our capacity and to really um, be able to process as many samples as possible um, in the near future. We have also translated our... Um, report on CREST uh, to Spanish. And we have some ongoing collaborations in South America to try to bring this kind of technology and this kind of assays to communities that could really benefit from them. 
And um, our last goal or an idea is to try to develop crest in a backpack and just make it so mobile that it can go anywhere. With that, um, I just want to finish with a reminder. This COVID-19 pandemic has really opened up our eyes of how unprepared we are to deal with a virus. We also have to be aware that viruses are everywhere and that we have to continue understanding their biology, not only to get insights into the disease, but also to get insights into ourselves. So there's more research to be done. There are really more avenues uh, that we can explore. And again, we just have to be ready um, so that when the next one comes, we are prepared. Okay, thank you. And with that, I just want to thank everybody who participated, all the COVID-19 team, everybody who was um, creating this wonderful partnership, and of course, all our volunteers and participants that really allowed us to deploy this test and to have these surveillance projects done. So thank you. And You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.